How do you deal with a stressed out customer? Whatever you do, do it quick because stress kills. Welcome to the Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. Welcome, everyone, once again to another episode of The Buyer's Mind, the podcast where we seek to understand what's going on in the brains of our customers. We believe here that if you know your customer well enough, that sale will begin to roll out right in front of you, and your customer will show you how to sell them a home. But if you really understand the way your buyer thinks, you can reverse engineer your own sales presentation to make it easy for them to buy. And today we're going to talk about a very specific aspect of the buyer's mind, and that is the, the stressed out portion of the customer's mind. Joined, as always, by our show producer, Paul Murphy. Murph, are, do you, are you stressed out when you're shopping? I don't think I am, uh, you know, usually by myself. Uh, if I get approached by a salesperson who's a little aggressive, uh, my stress levels can go up. But I think that's about it. Does that change depending on what you are shopping for? I mean, it's one thing if you're if you're looking for a pair of socks at a, at a Macy's somewhere. But what if you're at a you're shopping for a home or an RV or a really expensive jewelry or a car? Yeah, definitely uh, feel my uh, stress levels going up because, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, you're spending a lot of money, right? So uh, as, right. as the consequences go up uh, related to the dollar amount, uh, you feel a little more stress. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to see today that there is really an optimal zone of stress that is, in fact, necessary for action. That is that if there's no stress at all, then we get inertia, right? So we have this idea that... Um, if I have no stress in my life, I have no problems, I have no worries, then I'm not a buyer. I'm not shopping, right? If As soon as you step onto uh, a car dealership, as soon as you walk into a custom suit store, whatever it is that you're shopping for, uh, you're tipping your hand that there is a need. And when there is a need, there is some stress. So you got to have a little stress or you wouldn't be there in the first place. But too much stress is going to lead to distress. And uh, then that stress is going to lead to confusion. And as we've always said here on The Buyer's Mind, a confused mind says no. So today's question is, how do you keep your customer from stressing out? Now, I have a few suggestions, but my guest today has some really, really interesting ideas and especially about the psychology behind that. And, and might I suggest that you give this some brainstorming time? You, look, you know your customer better than I do. So what are your customers' stress points? That, that, that's a really good thought to keep in mind as we go into this conversation today. What are your customers' stress points? What are those points throughout the conversation where you have seen them get locked up, where you've seen them get a little bit concerned and like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. Uh, what are your customers' stress points? And we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. John Medina. We we started this last week, and it was so good that we just picked it right up. We went a little long, turned it into a, a second podcast because the conversation was so good. But we're really going to look at this and ask a very, very important question. On the emotional spectrum, how does stress affect decision-making? How does your customer's stress affect your customer's decision-making? Let's get into that with Dr. John Medina. 
Uh, we're, we're talking to Dr. John Medina, the author of Brain Rules. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, it's not just Brain Rules for you, but he also wrote Brain Rules for Baby and Brain Rules for Aging Well, a book that I admit I've not picked up yet, but at age 57, it, it's uh, it, I'm, I'm overdue to be able to do that. So I just put that on my own to-do list. Uh, John, on, on a different part of the emotional spectrum, tell us how stress affects decision-making. There is something that's called the Yerkes Curve, and we'll get back to the Yerkes Curve in just a second. A moderate amount of stress is actually really good for decision-making processes, depending upon the types of decision to be made. A little bit of motivation can produce uh, even creativity. If you've got Apollo 13 up there, and you know the, the, the spacecraft is broken and you've got to get them home, mm-hmm. the stress that you feel can actually ignite something that we call convergent creativity, which allows uh, uh, you to solve problems much better. So as long as the stress isn't completely catastrophic, you are on what we call the left side of the Yerkes curve. <laughs> Yerkes okay. curve is the ability to, uh, to, as you move the stress meter up, what happens to your cognitive abilities? So if you think of the uh, amount of stress you're experiencing as the x-axis and the amount of cognitive ability as the y-axis, you've got a raised curve. It's going to be it's going to look like the the left half of a camel hump. Okay, mm-hmm. but it does reach a peak, and at that peak, your cognitive ability begins to decline the more stress you experience. And we actually know why it peaks and what to do about it because it does peak. We now know that what your brain reacts to is not the presence of an aversive stimulus. It's not the presence of the stress that bothers you. What bothers you is your ability to feel in control of the stress. Mm -hmm. The more out of control you feel over a stressful situation, the more likely you are to enter into what we call the right side of the Yerkes curve, which is a decline. This is a camel hump. So what you're going to see is a decline. And your ability to continue to handle, to make decisions, to your point, and actually to do a whole range of cognitive ability, actually declines rapidly the more out of control you feel. Now, in a business situation, that this could be you, you have a project you are supposed to do, and you're going to be evaluated on that project, but you were not given enough money in the budget to be able to do that project. So you know the project is going to collapse you know there's no way you're going to get any more money from it, and you know your feet are going to get burned because you're going to get evaluated. You become out of control. That out of control put a circle around it because that's the stuff that actually hurts learning in almost every way you can think of hurting learning. It hurts decision-making processes, a particular cognitive gadget we call executive function, and uh, can be very powerful. So Stress can affect learning one of two ways. It can actually help cognition, help decision-making, up to the point where you feel out of control. And once you are out of control, then decision-making begins to collapse. Absolutely fascinating. So so let me just connect some dots here, and you can tell me whether I've connected them properly. Sure. Your stress is actually, it's, it's going to constrict your creativity when it gets to some point. Uh, you're going to get into some overload. The brain is likely going to just send the warning signals, shut down, and then we're going to revert back to whatever that known comfortable space is going to be, uh, even if it means I'm not going to make a decision at all. That's right. In fact, one of the first things to go is your ability to remember things. So your short-term memory begins to collapse. You begin to. Hmm. In fact, um, 
I've lectured occasionally to law enforcement about this because there's something that Beth Loftus discovered that's called weapons focus. Have you ever heard of weapons focus before? No, Jeff? I have not. Mm-mm, no. This would be really illustrative because uh, weapons focus is in regards to what happens to a a victim if they have suffered a physical assault of some kind. And let's say there was a weapon that was involved. All right. Now, the detective is going to go and interview the victim because needs to get the details on the perpetrator. So uh, uh, we'll ask the victim, well, you know, how, what, male or female, what color hair, what color eyes, whatnot. This is an extremely difficult interview to do because as your brain collapses into the, oh, my God, I think I'm going to die. You're on the extreme right side of the Yerkes mm-hmm. curve. Um, your memory collapses. In fact, you can get an amnesia, uh, both anterograde and retrograde. That means a couple of hours before the assault and a couple of hours after the assault, you don't remember very much. And during the assault, you remember almost nothing, which drives law enforcement crazy, except if there's a weapon. If there's a weapon involved, and let's say that you're a weapon-competent person, so you know your way around the gun a little bit, but mm-hmm. you were assaulted by someone who had a 9 millimeter. And if you ask the, uh, if the detective asks you what was the weapon involved, you have almost perfect recollection of the weapon. Yeah, it was a nine millimeter. He held it at this angle. The safety was off. I knew he meant business. The hammer was back. I mean, take your pick of the things. We call it weapons focus. Beth Loftus was the first to show that when you suffer severe stress, everything cognitively collapses around you except for the point of the weapon and, and at the weapon. So it's called weapons focus. Now, where this is relevant in business situations is actually something that's been measured. What happens if you as a boss yell at an employee? You yell at them and you have control over their job and their job performance and whatnot. You know what happens to that employee? That employee's working memory collapses. Why? Because they take a look at you and no longer hear your content if you're yelling at them and you're the boss. They only perceive a weapon. And so if you choose to yell at an employee, you have actually weaponized yourself and cognitive collapse is beginning to occur on the people that are suffering your wrath. So their working memory is gone. If you yell at somebody at three o'clock in the afternoon, you might as well then just let them go home because for a couple of hours, their ability to do their job, at least in terms of short term abilities, which is which is very much needed in a business setting, that's going to be gone. That's going to be history. Mm -hmm. So I usually tell both law enforcement and then also people that are in business of any kind, if you want to get the most productivity out of your employees, don't weaponize your mouth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see where that would uh, 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 lead to the exact uh, antithesis of what you're trying to do, right? We think we're motivating people by yelling at them and uh, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. Well, no, it's the okay. opposite of motivation. Because yeah, remember, exactly. Exactly. The brain is a survival organ, Jeff. We're going to go right back to the yeah, same thing. It doesn't matter sure. where you go. It's like a, right. a pinball that's captured with two bumpers. You can never get rid yeah. of it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. It's a survival thing. The brain is not interested in being productive. The brain is interested in if the boss is going to let them uh, stay in their job or not. Mm-hmm. And if the boss is yeah. yelling and because there's been a poor performance or any perception of safety issues, uh, the brain is immediately going to go to what it always goes to, and that is, am I going to die or not? Sure. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, buyers, we know they rely on uh, a whole 
range of heuristics we're in the purchase process, right? And how do I feel about uh, um, you know the, the the very act of of wanting to buy something? How do I feel about sure. salespeople? How, you know, what are my experiences? Uh, when you think about the fear that people have of making poor choices in the first place, and yeah. now you've got these heuristics on top of them, and they walk through the door, and oftentimes what we see is buyer behavior that manifests it's le- less than pleasant, right? We're going to be cold, we're going to be aloof, we're going to sometimes we're going to be just just flat a little mean at, at times, and yeah. and I understand the survival instinct there that makes perfect sense to me. The question yeah. that I want to ask is. How malleable are those heuristics? For example, the heuristic that I'm going to carry about a salesperson when I walk through the door, based on my yeah. experiences, based on what's been portrayed in the media, whatever it's going to be, how yeah. how easy or difficult is it for that salesperson to say, no, 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 I am not the person that you feared when you got out of your car? <laughs> oh, it's easy, but it is a dance with two partners. <laughs> If you think about it from the retail person's perspective, you know, they deal with all kinds of issues all day long. So some people are going to be mad at them. Some people are going to be happy. Most people are going to be indifferent. Uh, A lot of people have credit card debt, so they are insecure about whether they should buy this, you know, this new toy or or whatever. They're going to deal with a whole range of emotional issues. Um, One of the best things a buyer can do to, uh, to a seller when they come in the door is smile at them. No kidding. And the reason why is that for some strange reason, we use smiles baring our teeth, which is really weird, but it's true, as a safety cue. And the instant the, uh, uh, the seller sees a buyer walk through the door and the, and the buyer just looks at him and smiles at him, there's a safety cue that gets registered. Now, if the seller does the same thing, if the seller smiles at them also, and this can't be fake, by the way, you got to really do this for real, mm-hmm. but you can mm-hmm. I mean, it's, right. uh, when you create an atmosphere of safety, then the brain can make much more, I'm going to say the word informed decision, not rational, but more informed decisions. And the seller can actually become an ally to the, uh, to the buyer and the buyer feels safe and maybe feels less guilty about spending the money and then boom, spends the money. At the same time, even if the buyer goes away, the buyer may very well remember that the seller smiled at them that there was a safety cue, that they weren't as pissed off as many of many uh, sellers are because they have to deal with a really grumpy public all day long. But this one wasn't. People often remember their weight person really well. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why they remember their weight person really well in the positive sense is that if the weight person comes along and smiles at them, as, as opposed to, hi, what do you want? Here's the menu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, 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 right. So the ability to communicate safety, that's why I say it's a dance with two parties involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ability to communicate safety in the middle of a decision that is going to be high risk and purchasing something these days is just going to be high risk. It's high risk for anybody, even if you can afford what it is that you want. uh, Still, you have to part with something to to get something back. In a high risk situation like that, the more safety that you can give a person, the better it is. Mm-hmm. I remember once reading about uh, the, the, the tests that were done where you, 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 uh, people were held a pencil in their mouth, and depending on the way that they held it, whether they held it at its tip or whether they held it long ways, uh, it changed the shape of the mouth, and then they yeah. were asked to rate the how funny a joke was, and the people yeah. that were holding the pencil in a way that caused them to smile rated the joke as funnier. It, it, that yeah. that must have been just when you first learned that, which was probably you know I don't know yeah your day one in in uh, in school for you, uh, but yeah. that that must have been quite an insight. I would imagine. Well, it's really interesting. 
interesting to, to think. Uh, facial information is something the brain pays a great deal of attention to. Attention to. In fact, it's ex- it's expensive neurological real estate in there. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. dedicate areas of the brain to something unless we think it's important. Because, like I said, there's too much information thrown at it, and the brain is continually trying to trying to make sense of its world. We have a whole region in the brain. Get ready for a big word here. It's called the fusiform gyrus, that does nothing but do a single thing. What it process the emotional faces that they see, particularly extracting the emotional information from the face that they see. We have a whole region of the brain dedicated to responding to a face. In fact, you may have heard of something called face blindness. Have you ever heard of mm-hmm. that before? I Jeff? have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. This yep. is a, uh, um, a disability in that area. People who have face blindness cannot recognize other people's faces as their mm-hmm. own person. Mm-hmm. And, and the ability to extract information from it becomes limited. Uh, a, a very famous face-blind person was Oliver Sacks, the guy who wrote Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Another person who's a very famous face-blind person is uh, um, Howard Gardner, the guy who in, uh, came up with the concept of multiple intelligences. And when these people have to go out to a party, people that they may have known for 20 years, say it's a faculty party or whatnot, they literally, people literally have to have a little tag saying, hi, my name is Chris just so that the person with the face blindness will recognize who they are because they can't recognize them by their face. Mm-hmm. How big a disability is sure. that? Oh, my shows goodness. how yeah. powerful a priority the brain mm-hmm. has on faces and the ability right. to recognize the emotional information in a face. So when you walk into a store and you're a buyer and the seller looks at you, you guys are going to immediately, I don't know, you're not going to look down at their hands, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're not yeah. going to look down and see what shoes they're wearing. You immediately lock onto their face and certain types of information are immediately telegraphed. You can, mm-hmm. uh, you see it everywhere you go once you know where to look for it. Right, the people right. that respond best will respond best with safety. Sure. And that's, you said that smiling is a, a safety cue. Uh, yeah. I, I, it, part of this would be the idea, again, we're going to go back to the whole idea of, of identifying threat and figuring out how to survive here. Uh, but it's a single theme today. Doesn't exactly. It, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, we, I've, I've figured out the title of the show, uh, Survival. Uh, is it ju- I, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're, you're going to tell me that it's just plain easier to make a decision when I'm happy. Well, it's better to say you can make a decision better if you don't have stress hormones floating around in your head wondering if you're going to live or die. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. That's okay. a better way Fair to say enough. it. Fair Most, enough. If, when that gets relaxed, then you have the potential for feeling happy. That doesn't yeah. make you happy, by the way. It just mm-hmm. clears away some of the deck so that if there's going to be a positive interaction that's going to occur, it now has a greater probability of occurring, mm-hmm. if that makes yeah. sense. Right, right. So if, and the, from the, if two people will walk into each other and there's no, absolutely no, uh, uh, if their faces are inert, they don't do anything. Right. There's not a lot of communication that goes on there. The right. instant somebody growls or the instant somebody mm-hmm. smiles, then you start yeah. to get it. But you clear the decks first, and then if there's a smile that comes afterward, then, ah, okay, I, I knew he was not a threat. Now I know he might be an ally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. All right, so good. So this validates a couple of things. We, we regularly teach the concept that that simple equals right, easy equals it's, the easier it is for me to grasp, the righter it feels to me because it's it reduces that level of stress. And then yeah. we also teach that a confused mind is going to say no, right? They're, they're yeah. just going to overload and then they're going to go back into the, the known comfort of their life. So you're good well, with that? Well, consider that the brain is already overloaded. Mm-hmm. You know, when you yeah. wake up in the morning, you are overloaded. In yeah. fact, you are at one of the greatest risks for having a heart attack the instant you get up. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Your brain has been fallow for a period of time. It's been in sleep land, been processing information. All of a sudden, you wake up and you remember all the things that you have to do, and yeah. whammo, it hits you. Your greatest anxiety uh, uh, spikes occur there, and even depression occurs there too. So the brain is already overwhelmed. One of the reasons why you want to keep things as simple as possible is because if it's with a system that's already on the tipping point of, of saying no to you, keeping things as simple as possible begins to become a, wait for it, safety issue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can understand this. Right. Japanese, I was a professional animator and a graphics artist before I was a scientist. Why does and that not surprise things, me? I, I, yeah. I could have guessed that. I don't know how I could have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. I love the Nine Old Men of Disney. I'm a, I, I love the Miyazaki movies and whatnot. Yeah. I fell in love with Japanese art. Most mm-hmm. people, when they see Japanese art or they go into a Japanese garden, do not immediately feel a sense of anxiety. They feel a sense of peace. Mm. We actually think what's going on in the brain is that the simpler you make sensory input coming into the brain, the more the brain goes, oh, I can at least understand this in a, in a, in a world where there's so, so much cacophony and so many big things I have to process and I can only get 0.001% of it anyway. You know, this yeah. is a friend. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so KIS, sure. keep it simple, is a yeah, real, yeah, real yeah. true in marketing. It's true with, uh, in human relationships. It's true with yeah. setting goals. It's true with life simply because the system is overloaded. Yeah. All right. Uh, last question before uh, I, I shut it down and then go research uh, the Yerkes curve. Um, let's talk about brain health for a moment. I, I know you do a lot yeah. of work in this area. It, could you distill it down to just three suggestions, three important things that we can do to assure our own brain health? And that'll just be a tease before people go out and buy uh, one of your three books. <laughs> That's sweet. Number one probably would be, I can now get really practical with this simply because the peer review is now so strong, mm. particularly in a culture that is uh, marinated in busyness and, and uh, bifurcation. I would say my first thing for brain health would be get the two John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness protocols and memorize them. Memorize the John Kabat-Zinn version, though. There are many protocols out there, many of which are spurious, Jeff. have to be really careful with this. But uh, there's a book I can even recommend called The Mindful Way uh, Workbook. It's a, it's a terrific eight-week course that puts you through it. I have no financial interest in this. Mm-hmm. I'm just a deep admirer of John Kabat-Zinn. So the first thing I would say is get thee to thy mindfulness. Second, okay. maintain your friendships and make new ones and sustain those friendships that are both nourishing to you and that you can nourish. Create an equilibrium. Number The second suggestion is a relational one, a social one. Have friends, make new friends, and give as well as you get. By that I mean you need to listen to them, they need to listen to you. You can't have parasitic relationships and stay in the bounds of my second recommendation. You truly have to have what we call a bilateral relationship, a friendship. So that's number two. Mm-hmm. Number three, this is a, it'll sound a little amorphous, but I, 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 I can, I can summarize it in two words. Stay curious about things that are bigger than you are. So the two words are stay curious, but the real mm-hmm. thing I'm saying is stay curious about things that are bigger than you are. In other words, learn. 
mm-hmm. and continue to learn things about things, about the world that is bigger. Our native curiosity, we're born with it. Man, we do our best to anesthetize it when we have to worry about mortgages and our marriages. Nonetheless, the curiosity that we, that we were born with does not leave. Notice I said it wasn't killed, it was anesthetized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can bring that back. When you do that, when you begin to appeal to ideas that are bigger than you are, you enter into what we call decentering behavior as opposed to centering behavior. I'll explain that briefly and then I'll be off the concept for my third recommendation. When you are centering behavior, is just you preoccupied with your own problems. So my, my knees ache. Person A hates me. I hate person B. Uh, I, I, you know, everybody thinks I'm an idiot. All the stuff that is self, 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 centering behavior, we call it. In order to be able to get out of yourself, you have to go into decentering behavior. And one of the most powerful ways to do decentering behavior is to start contemplating and regularly immersing yourself in things that are other than you. In fact, things that are bigger than you. Marty Seligman in his great book, and I talk about this in the aging book, suggests that you do, if you really want to get a hold of decentering behavior, find a mentor that meant a great deal to you. Particularly, this works really well, particularly if they're alive. And tonight, write them a letter of gratitude for their input into your life. Just write them a letter. Write them a letter that says, yeah, you meant something to me. It could be a parent. It could be a teacher. It could be a friend. It could be anybody. But you write that letter. And then if they're still alive, you go out and you find that person and you read them your letter. Try not to cry. <laughs> this is a perfect example of decentering. When you are mm-hmm. being gra- grateful for something, you're being grateful for someone's someone's input into your life. You're no longer thinking about you. You're thinking about them, and this is a perfect way to get off. So the third, you can do this with a person. You can also do this with an idea. One of the reasons why I'm so attracted to the neurosciences is that I haven't had a boring day in 40 years because the thing is so darn interesting Mm -hmm. and so darn complicated. It is so much bigger than I am, Jeff. My narrow contribution slice is just this tiny little piece, and yet I get to see this vast, whirling universe of neurons. It's so much bigger than I am that I find I'm 63 I should be getting less curious as I get older. Mm-hmm. So my knee hurts now. <laughs> In <Yeah>. fact, <laughs> I'm getting more curious. And it's yeah. because of that third thing. We are uh, great ideas allow you to decenter. No, nope. I we'll love it. it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, there he is, Dr. John Medina. Great stuff. Uh, three books on brain rules. Just look it up on Amazon. It's uh, just very powerful. Uh, I've got some processing to do here, but I think I'm going to take a nap first. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm just I'm worn out, uh, but but in a really, really good way. Uh, uh, Dr. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. It's a pleasure to talk to you, buddy. And, and nice to meet you, Paul. Well, there you go, Murph. Uh, really, really interesting. And I have to tell you that the the idea here that even something as simple as a warm smile, authentic smile, but that a warm smile is going to make a huge difference, uh, that was kind of surprising to me. I mean, it, it almost sounds a little bit like manipulative, like, well, I'm going to smile big. And, and, uh, and yet we find that the warm, genuine smile goes a long way. Does this pass the real life test for you, Murph? 
So I feel like there's two things, right? There, there's the warm smile, which you appreciate. And then there's the smile like the Cheshire cat, you know, where you're like, uh, do I believe that smile? So I, I think, yeah, I think the truth of the smile uh, probably reveals a lot. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I think we can tell when somebody is faking it, right? We, we know what that's when, when that's happening. But there is that sense that if you look at it and you think about um, what does a genuine smile mean when you're stressed out? And so I, I, I've used this example before, but, you know, I fly all the time. And look, I don't love turbulence. I don't. When the plane gets really bumpy, I don't love uh, turbulence. But what do I do when I feel that turbulence and I get a little nervous? I look at the flight attendant. If the flight attendant is freaked out, I'm going to lose it right there. But if the flight attendant is calm and cool and just smiling and just doing her job, then I look at it and I go, oh, okay, that, that's not that bad. And then that tends to lower my stress levels. So it's really interesting here that even as we're thinking through our life, when we see people who um, are in authority and are calm and confident, it's, it's, it, it says a lot to us. I guess the same thing happens actually when the, when the pilot comes on and says, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, it's a little bumpy here. I know I'm going to turn the seatbelt sign. It's been about five minutes and we're fine. The tone of his or her voice is far more important than the words that are going to be said. So that idea here that a little stress, it ignites that that desire uh, to, to want to uh, make a move anyway. And our, in, uh, the, our conversation is uh, our, our customer's desire to purchase something. But that when that stress becomes catastrophic, when that stress increases, what happens? Our cognitive ability begins to decline. Right. We don't know what we don't know. And and that stress tends to constrict the creativity. The brain shuts down. And then what are we going to do? We're going to revert to whatever is most comfortable in our life. But uh, well, I'm going to just suggest you here that it is so important for you to manage your customer stress and to understand those moments and to take the time to be able to look at it and say, Hey, how you guys doing? You, you, you're doing all right here. I know this is a lot to cover, but I just want to make sure that we're still having a good time. This is supposed to be fun, right? Th those few words are going to go a long, long way. But it also speaks to one other question, and that is, what are you doing to manage your own stress? What are you doing to make sure you are not stressed out? Because the sales process itself, as a sales practitioner, it can be stressful. We're going to get price objections. We're going to get uh, customers who are sometimes curt and short and even a little bit rude at times. We're going to have interruptions. We're going to have mental distractions. We're going to have all these things going on that can add to our own stress. So then what happens? It adds to our own stress and inadvertently, we somehow communicate that stress to our customers. There's something about great salespeople who just find a way to keep it cool. They, they keep it relaxed. They keep it calm. They can have a good time even when a customer is going through a big, big decision that's going to affect the rest of their life. And I just want to recommend to you that you're asking yourself the question, well, what am I doing to manage my own stress? What am I doing to make sure that what I'm communicating to the customer is that sense of confident ease, that there is a relaxed focus to me right now? And we transfer that low stress environment over to our customers makes it so much easier for them to make that decision. That stressed out customer is going to be a real problem because that stress is going to lead to confusion and a confused mind says no. On the other hand, easy equals right. 
And when we make it easy for our customer, it just feels right. The, the easiest way to make it easy, give them a big smile, relax, let them know that this is a comfortable place. That is when you get to change their world. 